Like I said, we're, we're doing this new little mini-series on, on baptism, and um, you know, some of you knew this was coming, you'd, you'd seen the announcements, others of you were like, uh, yeah, all right, series on baptism, about time, been waiting for this, it sounds awesome, you know, can't wait to, to dig in. Others of you were like, huh? What? Baptism? Why are we doing a series on baptism? I don't care about this. I'll be back for Easter. You know, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you're somewhere in between uh, those two reactions. Let me tell you why we're doing this this series. The first reason is because we love controversy. Uh, No, we don't. We're actually pretty, uh, I think we're pretty inclusive in how we view the sacrament. Uh, We have plenty of people here who come from Baptist backgrounds, uh, and who still hold to a Baptist position on baptism. And what we're trying to create here at Tabernacle is a big tent when it comes to your uh, biblical conviction and conclusion when it comes to baptism, as long as it really does come from the Bible, right? I mean, that's, that's ultimately what you and I are responsible for, is do we believe what the Bible says, or are we just kind of going with the flow, believing what so-and-so believes, believing what the world thinks, whatever the case may be. Um, so we respect your position if it's a biblical position, and obviously there's plenty of brothers and sisters in the church uh, who disagree with us when it comes to the position of baptism. Um, so no, we're not doing this to you know poke, poke an argument or, or um, start a fight or anything like that. But we do think that this is something that you should know what you believe about, um, that there is biblical uh, evidence for you know both sides, but I, we're hoping to compel you with the biblical evidence for a more covenantal perspective on baptism. That would include putting the sign of the covenant on infants. Um, historically, we come from a tradition from the Protestant Reformation which identified a healthy church, uh, a true church, with three fundamental marks. The first one being the, the preaching of the gospel, uh, the last one being uh, a healthy accountability within the church that would include the proper use of church discipline, not to be mean, uh, not to shun people, not to be abusive, but to do what Jesus tells us to do uh, when he says, look, if, if somebody continues to be unrepentant, Treat them like you would somebody who's unrepentant. Um, and that's really Jesus' instruction to the church. So there's the right, there's, there's preaching the gospel, uh, there's uh, healthy accountability and church discipline. The second sign, the middle sign, historically has been the right uh, observance of the sacraments. Lord's Supper and baptism. So if we're going to be a healthy church, we probably ought to know what we believe about baptism, right? Uh, and there's a third reason why we're doing this series. And that is because we actually do have some of you, well, all of us need to know what we believe, but we have some of you that we're, we're thinking about, uh, and, and that's because we are in a season of officer nominations, and, uh, and we, we would like to persuade some, some of you men who are here at Tabernacle, and you're not sure what you believe about baptism, or you come from a Baptist background, and, and you still have that outlook, but you've never really been um, presented with a compelling biblical case for infant baptism. 
We're not here to corner you. Uh, there's, there's not a, I didn't bring my thumb screws, you know. Uh, but I do hope that, that this can be persuasive for you. If not, that's okay. Um, but we do, in our denomination, um, reserve ordination to elder or deacon for those who hold to a, a more traditionally covenantal view of baptism that would include putting the sign on children, okay? So that, that's a little introductional orientation. The big picture here is that we want everybody to know what you believe about baptism. Um, so with that in mind, let's, um, let's open to Genesis 17 today. We're going to talk about the God of the covenant. Next week, we'll talk about the sign of the covenant. And then the, we'll, we're going to wrap up by talking about the children of the covenant. But uh, let's look at the first 11 verses in Genesis 17. Would you stand in honor of God's word? <clears throat> and here we're going to hear more about the God of the covenant. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks for your covenant. We give you thanks for coming near to us, for your promise to be our God and that we would become your people. We give you thanks for Jesus, the one who kept the covenant for us, that by faith in him, we might be your people, that you might be our God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> uh, so verse 7 sort of gives us a, some, some anchors here. Uh, we're going to start off by talking about how God promises to establish His covenant. And then He says that this is going to be a covenant between me and you, Abram, and your offspring and even generations to come. Uh, and then in verse 9, uh, another hook we're going to hang some stuff on is this whole language of, you shall keep my covenant, right? Uh, so we're going to talk about those three things this morning. Let's, let's first begin with, with God saying, I'm going to establish my covenant. Uh, that, that when God, in verse 1, 
appears to a 99-year-old man in the ancient Near East. God, God reveals Himself as God Almighty. Uh, and that's a, uh, that's a, a proper name uh, that, that God uses to describe Himself. Maybe you've heard El Shaddai. Uh, there was a song with that title years back. And, uh, and that's the Hebrew name for God Almighty. And God Almighty appears to Abraham and says, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. That, that language where God describes himself as almighty uh, is not unique uh, to Genesis 17. It, it, it happens and is an echo throughout the Bible, uh, all the way from Genesis to the end to even Revelation where God reveals Himself in Revelation chapter 1. He says to Him who loves us, right? God loves us and has freed us by, from our sins by His blood and made us to be a kingdom and priests to His God and Father. To this God be glory and dominion forever and ever. I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the Almighty God who calls the shots and who's active in our salvation. It's Him who loves us. It's Him who freed us from our sins by His blood. It's Him who makes us a people and a kingdom and to be priests. And it's Him who is the first and the last. It is Him who is who was and is and is to come. He is almighty. And when he is revealing himself to Abram, look at verses 4 and 5, he does something unique. He expresses his power and his omnipotence by doing something. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. Abram uh, in the idiom meant exalted father. Uh, and it might refer to Abram and it might have referred to Abraham's father. Uh, you know, the scholars are not entirely certain. But Abram's name is changed from exalted father to Abraham, the father of many. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So God Almighty does something. He changes Abraham's name. Uh, when I was about Lydia's age, I don't know, I was 11 or 12, and I was in sixth grade, I did something. I changed my name. Because when you're in sixth grade, this is a stretch for some of you, I mean a long stretch for some of you. When you were in sixth grade, it really wasn't very cool to have a different sounding name. You know, I've got, that, I've got that kind of name, Essen, that I have to repeat often, especially when I meet new people. I'll say, hey, how you doing? I, you know, I'm so-and-so. And they say, hey, I'm, nice to meet you. I'm Essen. And they go, what? And so I have to slow down and be very deliberate with my pronunciation. Hello, my name is Essen. You know, and I, I give a little backstory. You know, my dad was an artist. And hey, I don't know. I was born in 1970. I'm just glad I'm not Dweezil or Moon Puppy. <laughs> I got off easy, um, and, and so on, you know. But in middle school, Essen is just not cool. So when I was in sixth grade, I changed my name to the coolest 
most normal sounding name I could think of. I said, I want you to call me Jeff. Not, not Joffrey. <laughs> Nothing unusual. Just straight up J-E-F-F. Just good old fashioned Jeff. All American Jeff. Nice to meet you. And I had every single person I knew calling me Jeff. My parents called me Jeff. My teachers called me Jeff. My friends called me Jeff and so on. And I just kept that going all the way until 11th grade when I switched schools. And, and switching schools in the middle of 11th grade gave me a very unique opportunity, a very strategic time in my life to do something again that would sort of redefine me and give me a new start, etc. And I changed my name back to Essen. Because everybody knows by the time you reach high school, you're looking for some way to stand out a little bit. You want to be a little bit different. And so, hey, I'm going to be Essen. And, you know, the chicks dig something different. I know Kathy did. Um, so, Essen. Go back to sixth grade. What if instead of, of telling everybody, you know what, I want you to call me Jeff, I'm changing my name. What if instead of, of me changing my name, what if some punk kid, some punk sixth grader just came up to me and said, hey, I've decided I'm not going to call you Essen anymore. I'm going to call you Jeff. What if some punk kid, some punk sixth grader came up to me and said, hey, I'm going I'm to start, so start calling you Jose. Or I'm going to start calling you Justine. <laughs> Is that okay? That's not okay. That's wrong. That's wrong for anybody to assume the right to rename you. It's okay for me to say, hey, I'm going to change my name. But it's not okay for somebody else to do that. And yet, look at what God is doing to Abram. Taking it upon himself to say, Abram, I'm going to call you a new name. Um, back in the ancient Near East, this, this was not uncommon. You see this especially when a dominant king with the dominant kingdom comes in and takes over uh, the smaller king, the smaller kingdom, and defeats them and then you know, deports all the people. You see this in the life of Daniel. right? So uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, conquers Jerusalem and Daniel and his friends are deported and they're shipped off to Babylon where Daniel gets called a new name, Belteshazzar. And his three friends, they no longer are called by their Hebrew names. They get three new names. Perhaps you've heard of them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are not Hebrew names. Babylonian names. Because Nebuchadnezzar was demonstrating his almighty power, his ability and his sovereign right to call the shots and to say, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to redefine you. I'm going to rename you. And you're no longer the person that you were before. Now you serve me. Whatever the king was or so on. So changing somebody's name is an exercise of power and of will and, and, and sovereignty. It's even a, an expression of ownership. And it just it feels wrong to us in its earthly experience. But in its heavenly reality, it's something far different. 
and it's good, and it's beautiful. Because Jesus, in saving us and rescuing us, gives us a new name. Um, God calls us by a new name because He is Almighty, and He's come to us in our lostness, in our fallenness, in our sinfulness, and has rescued us out of that past and has delivered us and has promised to give us a new future. I now define you. The kingdom of God is your new citizenship. Welcome to your new home. And of course, there actually are earthly pictures uh, that are good, that we do resonate with when it comes to renaming somebody. So think of adoption. Think of that experience where a child who doesn't have a father and mother uh, is swept up and brought home by a, uh, an adoptive father and an adoptive mother, and they're given a new name. They're given a family name. And that child is now a daily. That child is now a Woodworth. That child is now a Vogan. And that's a good and a beautiful thing. Those parents bring this child into the family saying, we are your family. You are one of us now. And it is our intention that you would take on the family likeness. You would take on our name. And this is a picture of what God is doing when he brings us into his family. He says, I am going to be your father. You are going to be my children. And in this covenant, in this relationship, I'm going to make you like me. That's God's almighty power. So he says it's his covenant too. Um, In verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you. And as the almighty sovereign God who's created all things and sustains all things and is bringing all things to an appointed end, he really does define the terms. And he gets to, as I said, call the shots. And he's graciously pursuing a people with whom he promises a relationship, a covenant. And he says this again and again in these 11 verses, beginning in verse 2, he says, I'm going to make my covenant between me and you. Look at verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you. Verse 9, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep. Again and again, God keeps saying, this is my covenant that I am sovereignly making with you. In fact, if we were to read the rest of chapter 17, we would have to count nine times that God says, this is my covenant. He's God Almighty. He's in control. And this is His covenant with us, not our covenant with Him. I want you to see that distinction. You've got to see that distinction. God does not say this is some kind of you know, bilateral thing. This is just a contract between two people and we're going to you know, come to the table as peers. This is a covenant. This is something where God is demonstrating His power and He's coming to us and He's saying, I'm going to tell you the terms. And it doesn't stop. The language of my covenant continues. It began with the first Adam in the garden and it continues uh, with the, the second Adam. And it continues with Jesus 2,000 years later after God's promising this covenant, my covenant I'm going to make with you, Abram. 2,000 years later in fulfillment of the new covenant that Jeremiah promised, Jesus lifts the cup and He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Right? He continues to say, this is my covenant with you. 
and I'm bringing you into relationship with me. So that's, that's this whole picture of God the Almighty coming to us. I'm going to establish my covenant. And he says, between me and you and your offspring. So let's talk about the parties of the covenant. Um, yeah, there's, there's God and Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants. So there's, there's two parties, but it's a unilateral covenant. God's accepting all of the, the terms here, and he keeps making all of these promises to Abram. Um, he says, for instance, I'm going to multiply you greatly. And he says, you're going to multiply into a multitude of nations. You know, not that you're going to multiply so much that you're going to become a nation, but you're going to multiply so much that you're going to become nations, and that Kings will come from you, and then I'm going to give you and to your offspring after you all the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan and, and so on. And you can just, you, you hear just how grandiose these promises are. And if you can imagine Abraham, this is the third time now that God has appeared to him, made these kinds of promises to him, and he's just, it's washing over him, and he can't, can't believe he's on the receiving end of these kinds of things. And you can just imagine him stone cold, silent, you know, jaw gaping and eyes wide open. Well, in, in truth, we really don't have to imagine Abraham's reaction because we're told what it is in verse 3. It just says that Abraham fell on his face. And we don't hear much from Abraham. We, you actually don't hear a word from Abraham in verses 1 through 11 because Abraham is just silent. He knows that he is the, um, the, the weaker of the two parties here. And this plays out pretty much the same way every time God comes to his covenant representatives and makes these kinds of promises to them. So God appears to Adam and Eve, and they're astounded to, to hear that there's going to be a promise of, of one who would come from the woman, the seed of the woman who will crush the enemy's head. So Adam and Eve receive a promise. Noah and his family are amazed that they are spared the destruction of the flood. And then you get to Abraham and Sarah, and they are blessed beyond any expectation to begin God's family. And then Moses and the people are delivered beyond all hope from Egypt and from that terrible slavery in order to go worship God. And then lastly, you get to David and the nation, and they're promised to become a great kingdom. They're this tiny little tribe, basically, and God is promising them to be a kingdom. So each of these, each of these covenants is really just part of the one big overarching covenant of grace. And it began in a garden with Adam and Eve, with promises made to them, and it will continue with a new Adam and a new garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Adam, the second Adam, promises to be the covenant keeper. We're going to talk more about that in a second. But the, the central element for all these different expressions of how God's relating to, to, to Adam, to Noah, to Moses, to Abraham, to David, all of those are ways of God expressing his fundamental promise. I like how John Murray puts it, that the central element 
of the blessing involved and in the covenant of grace is the relationship expressed in these words, that I will be your God and you will be my people. So most of you, I think, have heard of the Old Covenant and New Covenant, or you've heard of in your Bibles, there's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. Covenant and Testament are fairly synonymous words, lots and lots of overlap. The basic promise of the covenant, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, is that God is with us, that He is graciously entering into a relationship with us where He promises to be our God and that He's going to make us His people. This promise keeps getting repeated over and over and over again from Genesis to Revelation. Revelation 21, the ends of your Bible, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. So there's one covenant of grace that spans and it expands as it's revealed from Genesis to Revelation. And it's that fundamental promise that just keeps getting piled on with blessing after blessing that I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. So those are the parties to, to the covenant. Um, there, there's also mention of children, right? And the descendants uh, after you, your offspring uh, in verse 7. This is, where, this is where Christians start to disagree when it comes to the sign of the covenant. Like um, we put the sign of the covenant on the child of a believing parent uh, because we think that's what God's calling us to do because this covenant belongs to the children. And our Baptist brothers and sisters, they're saying, well, now the, the new covenant um, says that we should only put the sign on people who have actually said that they believe in Jesus. And we're going to talk more about that uh, as, we, as we go along in the co- next couple of weeks. Uh, so that's one of the things we want to look at. Uh, what does God intend for our children in relationship to this covenant? Uh, but let's, let's wrap up by this language now to Abraham where God says that you shall keep my covenant. How do we respond to God Almighty coming to be with us? When an Almighty God comes and pursues a relationship with us, what should our response be? Well, in verse 10, for starters, um, God says, Abraham, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So that's one aspect of what it means to keep this covenant, is to receive the sign of the covenant. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So, God has established a sign that includes the kids. And God's covenant with us, it's God's sign of His covenant with us. It's not our covenant, and it's not our sign. I want that to be clear. Just as much as God says, this is my covenant with you, He's saying, this is my sign that I want you to put on your kids. Um, So we get to talk about circumcision now. That's fun. Oh, my word. Um, okay. In, 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 in chapter 17, if you've got your Bible open, look down beyond where we ended our passage. Look at verse 14. And it says that any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. 
he has broken my covenant. Um, so circumcision is a sign of this covenant for some significant reasons. Um, yes, it's graphic. Yes, it's, uh, it's disturbing in, in, in a lot of ways. But anyway, we're going to focus on the good things. What it means is that when the foreskin is removed, it's a picture of God taking away our flesh, our sinful nature. Uh, it's not an arbitrary sign. Um, it wasn't unique to Israel. Lots of other nations were doing it. But God adds this significance to the sign because he's adding the reality of the covenant uh, to its meaning. So when the foreskin's removed and it's literally thrown away, it's disposed of, um, that is a picture, that's a reminder to Israel that I am removing your sinful nature. I'm removing your sins from you. Um, and it happens by the shedding of blood. That's not an accident. Israel needs to know that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And then if, uh, um, if there's a, a male among Israel who's not circumcised, that person's supposed to be cut off. What does that tell you? It tells you that the circumcision is... Um, is a means so that the person himself won't be cut off. Something else is cut off, ultimately pointing to someone else, someone else who is cut off in the place of the one who is in covenant with God. Um, that's why circumcision uh, was such a valuable picture for how the covenant was understood in, in its first expressions you know, to Abraham and to Israel. Um, circumcision, as Paul describes it in the New Covenant, you see that it's not um, that the, that what it's signifying isn't altogether different from what we believe. Uh, in Romans four, Paul says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. Um, this is another another place where. Uh, Christians find themselves in different camps. Um, so we would say yes and amen to how significant Romans 4.11 is, that even back in the Old Testament, that covenant, that covenant sign was fundamentally a picture of salvation by faith in Christ. Uh, as opposed to what uh, a, a lot of our brothers and sisters would insist, that no primarily circumcision was a, uh, a national marker, you know, this indicator that we are part of the, the nation of Israel and that's what defined them in relationship with God. Uh, and we'll talk more about that point of disagreement uh, in future weeks as well. Um, let, me, let me try to put it this way. The circumcision was a sign and a seal of a, of a reality that God had instituted with his people. Um, a lot of you, if you're married, you wear a wedding band. And it's, it's a sign of promises that you made to your spouse. Um, this is my wedding band that Kathy gave me uh, 25 and a half years ago. So when we went out shopping for wedding bands, um, we, we thought, well, let's, let's do something special with our wedding bands. Let's get them inscribed. So both of our bands are identical in, in that they both have the date uh, inscribed on them, uh, 8-15-92. So, I mean, we were, we were 10 years old when we got married. Um, 
so it was a, an unusual uh, covenant. Uh, but anyway, uh, we, uh, we, we were both 21. We were young, just out of JMU. Uh, I mean, I, we were only about three or four years old as Christians. So still sort of, you know, young Christians. Um, but we loved each other. We wanted to make sure that our, our vows were rooted in the gospel and, and uh, God's covenant. And so the other thing that we inscribed our rings with was this, a little expression, a, a four-word expression that my ring begins and her ring completes. So on the inside of my ring, this is where they're different, my ring says, our covenant, dot, dot, dot. And then on the inside of Kathy's ring, it says, dot, 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 with God. So our two rings together say, our covenant, with God, because we wanted to make sure that, that we knew, that we were reminding one another that we have made vows that nothing will, will separate except death. We made a vow to God, and we made a vow before all the people that were there, even though we were only 10 years old, no, even though we were 21 years old, we, we were serious till death parts us. And and it was the covenant that God um, made with us that was going to undergird those promises. And so actually, in reality, um, if I, some people renew their vows, you know, and they'll even exchange new rings. Uh, I don't know that we're, we haven't talked about doing that. But, you know, if we were older, if we had been older when we got married, I wonder if I would have suggested a different, different inscription. Because what our inscription right now says is our covenant with God. What if our rings instead said, God's covenant with us. It says something different, doesn't it? It means that we're not relying on ourselves so much and our ability to hang in there, you know, stay married or whatever. But what if our, our rings really reflected, what if our vows really reflected a reality that we are relying on and depending upon God Almighty to sustain us and to bless us. Isn't that what this sign's supposed to be? Isn't that what the signs of the covenant are really indicating? That they are reminding us of the power of God Almighty to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I don't have the power to keep the covenant. I don't have the power to fulfill these obligations. I mean, that's the whole point, right? I mean, look at verse 1. Oh my goodness. God appears to Abram and says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Any takers? Nope. Let's talk about marriage again for just a second. Those marriage vows, they sound great. Have you ever thought about what you're really saying, what you're really hearing when you hear two people make a, a, a wedding vow. To have and to hold this day forward, sickness and want, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, you know, and, and some people make up their own vows. And look, they, they are good, they are noble, and they are healthy, but they are impossible. And that's why marriages need the gospel Ultimately, you need to be undergirded by the foundation of God's covenant with you. Because if you don't understand the way that God has covenanted with you through Jesus, you're not going to have the power to forgive your spouse when your, when your spouse inevitably messes up. And you're not going to have the humility 
to love genuinely if you are relying on yourself instead of on the God who enables you to love your spouse. And you won't hang in there. You won't endure to the end if you're relying on yourself because at the end of the day, you start thinking, well, I'm putting in more than, than I'm getting and I'm done, I'm out. What about what God put into you? And what about the one who went to the cross and gave everything and laid down his life for you to give you the power to know that you're loved so that you can be filled as you move into relationship with your spouse. And you can forgive as you've been forgiven. You can love as you've been loved instead of looking for life from your spouse who you ought to be looking for life from Jesus. He's the true covenant keeper. He's the only one that really kept the everlasting covenant. In Isaiah 24, we read that the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws. They have violated the statutes. They've broken the everlasting covenant. And we all have broken the everlasting covenant. Adam broke the everlasting covenant. Noah broke the everlasting covenant. Abraham broke the everlasting covenant. So did Moses. So did David. So have all of us, except one. There's only been one man who's ever kept the whole covenant. There's only one who's ever completed the covenant that God expected him to keep. And we're told about the one who did that in 1 Corinthians 15. For as by a man, the first Adam, came, came death, by a man, the second Adam, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus didn't come to institute a different covenant. He came to institute a better covenant. It's not the annulment of the first covenant, but the fulfillment of the first covenant that makes Jesus' covenant new. It's improvement, not replacement. And so when he holds up that cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he's pointing to his blood and his body as the means by which our sins would be forgiven. And all who put their faith in Jesus are keeping the covenant because he kept it in our place. Is your faith in Christ? There's no way that you can be brought into this household of God where God will be your God and you will be his people unless the covenant is kept. And either you keep it or Jesus keeps it for you. And if Jesus has kept it for you, guess what? Good news. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. All those promises to Abraham, they're yours. You are part of that family. You are part of Abraham's children. And you are, to, to you belong not just a little bit of you know, seaside territory on the eastern part of the, the, the Mediterranean. You don't just get that land. You get the whole earth. You and I are going to inherit the new creation. You and I are eternally in relationship with God, our Father. There's nothing that can sever that, nothing that can break that. He is our God, and we are His people. And you know what He does for us? God Almighty, who gave us the keeper of the covenant, He baptizes us. He brings us under the sign of His covenant, and He baptizes us in the name of the Father 
and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You and I are given a new name. You're called Christian. Little Christ. God looks at you the way he looks at his son. He loves you the way he loves his son. He loves you because of his son. So show the world the reality of the son. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to believe. We need your help to keep this covenant. We need your help to keep hold of Jesus who kept the covenant in our place. Uh, Lord, we have good days and we have bad days. On our good days, I pray that our boasting would be in Jesus. And on our bad days, I pray that our repenting would be in, in and through Jesus who takes our sins away and who gives us a clean record who fills us with love, who fills us with acceptance, who fills us with reminders of your promise and who is uh, the demonstration of the height and the width and the depth and the length of your love for us. So thank you for giving us Jesus who kept the covenant in our place. Lord, would you bless this church? Would you bless us with a, a deeper conviction of how well we're loved and the eternity of the inheritance that is